In this week's Torah portion, we learn of the actions taken against Yosef by his brothers. Their jealousy was aroused against him, and they considered killing him. Ruvain saved Yosef by suggesting that they not kill him, and that they instead cast him into a pit. Brothers listened to Ruvain, and when Yosef approached them, they threw him into a pit that is described in Paraklamid Zion, chapter 37, Pasukhov Dalad, verse 24, in the portion of Ayeshev, as rake in by Mayim, empty, with no water in it. Rashi quotes the words in the Talmud that comment on these words, explaining the phrase, it was empty, there was no water in it. In the original source in the Tractate of Shabbos, where the Talmud discusses the laws of Hanukkah, we read, and the Gemara cites another statement that Rav Kahana said that Rav Nassim Bar Manyumi taught in the name of Rav Tanchum. What is the meaning of the verse that is written with regard to Yosef? And they took him and cast him into the pit, and the pit was empty, there was no water in it. By inference from that which is stated, and the pit was empty, don't I know that there was no water in it? Rather, why does the verse say there was no water in it? The verse comes to emphasize and teach that there was no water in it, but there were snakes and scorpions in it. At first glance, it appears that this explanation is quoted in the section that discusses Hanukkah, because this was the opinion of the same Rav Kahana, who taught the preceding idea, which discusses the permissible height of a Hanukkah menorah. But as we frequently discuss that everything in every aspect of Torah is absolutely specific, we therefore understand that when the Gemara brings a teaching in a specific sugya, it's not just randomly a side issue that happens to have been said by the same sage, but the content of the teaching is indeed connected to the sugya where it's being quoted. And that is the case here. There is indeed a connection between this teaching on the words, the pit is empty and there is no water in it, in Vayeshev and Hanukkah. As the Holy Shalom writes at the beginning of his commentary on our Torah portion of Vayeshev, that the Torah portions of Vayeshev, Miketz, and Vayigash all have an inherent connection to Hanukkah. The sages say that there is nothing that slakes a man's inner thirst, as water does for one who is thirsty, other than Torah. Thus, any time there's a reference to water in Torah, we understand that it also alludes to Torah. Certainly regarding a verse that reads, the pit is empty, it has no water, the Midrash teaches that this is a reference to Torah, and it means the pit is empty, suggesting that Jacob's pit had become empty, and Ein by Mayim, it had no water, suggesting that there are no words of Torah, which is compared to water. And this is in fact a deeper explanation of the teachings of our sages quoting the Talmud, there is no water, but there are snakes and scorpions in it. In fact, the Midrash Barashas Rabban, our Torah portion, teaches these two explanations. One, there is no water, but there are scorpions and snakes. And two, there is no water, there are no words of Torah. As a continuum of explanations on the words, an empty pit, there is no water. Because if someone finds oneself in the sad state where there are no where there is no Torah, in other words, there's no spiritual water, one automatically ends up in a situation where there are spiritual snakes and scorpions. 
And there's no intermediary stage in this reality. The absence of Torah doesn't just bring an emptiness to a person's life, like an empty pit that just remains empty, and that perhaps while there's no Torah, there's some good or permissible things in that spiritual state that one is in. No, there's an empty pit, a void of Torah, that will become filled with spiritual snakes and scorpions, thoughts or things that negate holiness. When in the Torah portion of Akev, Moshe forewarns the nation, Beware, lest your heart be misled, and you turn away and worship strange gods and prostrate yourselves before them. The Baal Shem Tov gives a similar explanation on the words, You will turn away and you will serve idols, saying that when a person separates himself from God, he will immediately turn to idol worship, and there isn't a process or some intermediary stages in this. With this deeper explanation, we understand why the Torah doesn't indicate directly that there were snakes and scorpions, as it's self-understood, if there is no water. Snakes and scorpions are a direct and absolute result of the lack of water, and there's no need for mention of these details. It's also understood why the Midrash states these two explanations side by side, one following the other. One explanation is interdependent in the next. The fact that there are snakes and scorpions in a pit is a direct and inseparable result of the empty pit, a direct result of a void of Torah. And this directly causes events that negate Torah, like the sale of Yosef. It would seem, though, that there is a question to be asked here. Granted, as the Baal Shem Tov explains, when one turns away from God, when as a nation... We lose our connection and abandon our attachment to God. There is a direct result of turning to a foreign deity. That as soon as we detach from God, the attachment to a foreign God, whatever form that takes in our lives, will result. But in our discussion, why would a lack of water, or the spiritual water, Torah, consequently result in an immediate state that negates Torah? Also, we know that Yosef's brothers determined that according to Jewish law, Yosef was actually deserving of death. They experienced his coming, this Forna teaches, not as one who was coming to see that they were well, but as a desire to find something that they were doing wrong and to report it back to Yaakov. They experienced Yosef as one who sought their downfall in the eyes of Yaakov, their father, or deserving of demise in the eyes of God. And the law is that if one comes to kill you, kill him first. Other commentaries explain other reasons for their actions. And in that case, why does the Midrash teach that because they wanted to kill him, the pit of Jacob was emptied and there was no water, no Torah? It sounds like the brothers, God forbid, did not consider the Jewish law or Torah at all, when in fact they believed they were doing exactly what was required by Jewish law. To really understand the answer to these questions, we need to understand why our sages compare Torah and water. The Torah has many references to wine, to bread, to oil, and more. Each of these describe a different character or quality of Torah. The comparison of water to Torah is taught by our sages in the following way. Why is Torah compared to water? For just as water begins in a high place and goes to a lower place, so too the words of Torah don't have continuity. 
other than with an individual who has proper humility. In other words, it isn't Torah that's water that's likened to Torah, but the nature of the one who studies Torah, his humility or abandonment of ego of the one who studies Torah that is required for the study of Torah. And with this, we can explain the Midrash that teaches that Yaakov's pit was emptied and had no Torah. Yisus' brothers were concerned with the laws of Torah, but were missing the water, the flow. The pit was empty means there was no water. Taking their greatness into consideration, turns out they lacked the humility and abnegation of ego. This idea is demonstrated in the concept of bowing during the Amida prayer. The Talmud and the Tractate of Brachas teaches that we bend our knees when we say Baruch, blessed, and we stand when we say God's name, Hashem. But a king, once he bows, does not stand upright until he concludes the entire prayer. The loftier one's status, the more important it is to demonstrate his subservience to God. But the explanation we just gave actually aggravates the question. How is it possible to suggest that as soon as there's no water, so to speak, there's an immediate result of snakes and scorpions taking the place of holiness? Are we saying that only because of their lack of complete humility and complete negation of ego when they study Torah, there were spiritual scorpions and snakes that negated holiness and Torah? The answer to this question is that the central aspect of Torah study is that this is the way in which we connect to the one who gave the Torah. And as long as a human being is aware of his humanness and experiences self and ego, he's actually limited in his ability to connect to the unlimited oneness of God who gave the Torah. Only when he is freed of ego and thus freed of his limitations can one connect to the unlimitedness of God who gave the Torah. It is thus that we understand the words in the prayer of the sage Mar, the son of Ravina, quoted in the Talmud in the Tractate of Brachas. May my soul be like dust to all. Open my heart to your Torah. It would seem that the study of Torah should be with enthusiasm and with excitement, with understanding and ownership of one's study, which would normally come when one's intellect and energy is completely engaged and vibrant. But this request, may my soul be like dust to all, denies all of that and denies the very essence of one's experience of self and a live self. And it sounds like a total contradiction to the excitement and enthusiasm that must accompany the study of Torah. It's this part of the prayer, the request, P'sach secha, open my heart to your Torah, to your Torah, that allows the Torah scholar to transform into a vessel to God's Torah, which in itself has no limitations. But this can happen only through the absolute negation of self, like dust before all, like one upon whom we tread. This level of nullification assists a person in receiving the Torah of God, thereafter using his own intellectual powers via, as Mar the son of Ravina prays, Psach Libi, open my heart, using his internal soul powers. This gives us an insight into the surprising qualitative value of Torah studied out loud over internal understanding of Torah, as the Alter Rebbe teaches in chapter 37, Perak Lamed Zayin of Tanya, quoting the tractate Brachas, that it is an accepted principle that hirhur, love, kidibur, dame, thought is no substitute for speech. 
In fact, the law in the Altenebisochner, a code of Jewish law, is that one who is only thinking Torah need not make the blessing for Torah study, because thought is not like speech. And whatever is studied only in thought, though it can be studied out loud and is not, this study is not considered the fulfillment of the mitzvah to study Torah. More so yet, understanding Torah depends on speaking the words of Torah out loud. As the sages explain in Erevin, regarding the words in Proverbs, Ki chayim the words of Torah are life for those that find them. Read this, not as for those who find them, but as for those who verbally express them. Not only verbally, but if Torah study is not an exertion and an expression of one's entire body, it is not secure and can be forgotten. As occurred to the student of Rabbi Eliezer, who studied quietly for three years, but then forgot what he studied. Now this really requires explanation, as in the Shulchan Aruch and the laws of the Talmud Torah, the law is explicit that if the words of the oral Torah are studied and not understood, it's not considered learning at all, as if to say that the study of as if to say that the study of the oral Torah is dependent or based upon one's understanding. And if so, why, despite this, is the verbal utterance of Torah nevertheless so important that the law is that if one is studying only quietly in contemplation, he need not make the blessing for studying Torah. Not only is it not considered as though he has fulfilled the obligatory mitzvah to study Torah, what he studied and understood will not be safeguarded in his memory, and he will forget it. Here is how this is understood. It's clear that the essence of Torah is the connection through Torah with the Nosein HaTorah, with God who gave us the Torah. And the study of Torah needs to be in a way that understanding it is not limited by one's intellect, but unlimited by God's unlimitedness that is in his Torah. There is also the nullification of the klipa of one's physical body when the soul powers of the animal soul are used for the verbal study of Torah not only in preparing to study, but also in the study itself, expressing the words of Torah with one's mouth and even exhaustively engaging in study with one's limbs. When a Jew studies Torah with the power of his intellect, intellect, though this is the highest quality in the human being, he remains just a human being, and he doesn't have the ability to absorb the divine word of Torah. It is the quintessential elephant through the eye of a needle situation, Despite the reality that an elephant is limited, it in no way can fit through the eye of a needle, and it cannot even be experienced in the fantasy of a dream. Certainly then, the Torah, which is bound up with the essence of God, the ultimate unlimited one, cannot enter and become grasped by the limited intellect of man, which is why it cannot be held onto by these limited vessels and remembered. On the other hand, when the learning is connected to one's mouth, and even with lesser limbs, or lower than man's lofty intellect, in other words, the learning is with a descent and a nullification of what makes a person, so to speak, great, but involves all of his nether and lower strengths, in this way nullifying a person's sense of self and ego, that one can study the Torah of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, God's Torah, the unlimited Torah, and we can become deeply absorbed within him and remain preserved within Accordingly, we can understand what our sages say, there is no water, but there are snakes and scorpions, as we explain that the very absence of water suggests the presence of snakes and scorpions, because the essence of Torah is the connection to the giver of Torah, 
which is achieved by one's self-abnegation. And there's no intermediary process between the lack of water and the space being filled with scorpions. Unless this humility is present, and in one study one is aligned with the truth of Torah as the giver of the Torah intended and willed it, or, if God forbid, there is no water, the humility for Torah, he's then missing the connection to the one who gives the Torah, and therefore there are snakes and scorpions, which means that not only does he ha- not have a connection to Torah, because we, as we learn in the Tractate of Erevin, the Torah is not with the arrogant, but he also negates holiness in his life, because, as the sages teach, I and one who is arrogant cannot dwell together, says God. Worse yet, it is as though one denies God and serves a foreign deity. The Midrash thus explains the behavior of Yosef's brothers with the words, the pit of Yaakov was empty, void of Torah. Torah wasn't lacking, God forbid. They actually believed that halakhically this is what Yosef deserved, but they were lacking. In light of their greatness, the water, the humility, and thus what they determined as the law that Yosef deserved death as a punishment was not properly attuned. The stories of our Torah portion about the events that occurred with Yosef and his brothers is an introduction to the exile of Egypt and to the redemption from Egypt, whose ultimate purpose was the giving of the Torah. So to the discussion of there is no water, but there are snakes and scorpions in it, which we study in this week's portion, is relevant to the general giving of the Torah. Because this idea of water in Torah, the humility, an effacement of ego for the study of Torah or for the student of Torah, so that he can connect with God who gave the Torah, essentially manifested at the giving of the Torah. The difference between the study of Torah of our forefathers before the giving of the Torah and the study of Torah by their children after the giving of the Torah is that they studied with a self-determination and were thus able to grasp according to human capacity through their, though their capacity was indeed great. After Matan Torah, we study God's Torah that God gave us. He gave us his Torah, given by God to every Jew, and this is highlighted by the law, that every Jew every day is obligated to make a blessing on the study of Torah. This also explains the teaching of our sages, that in the beginning Moshe would study Torah and forget it, until it was gifted to him. It seems at first to be a little surprising, because Torah was studied before the Torah was gifted to us at Sinai, and our forefathers did not forget what they studied. So how was it that after the giving of Torah, Moshe studied and forgot? The answer is that the study of Torah before the giving of the Torah was at the level of the capacity of an individual and could thus be internalized and absorbed by our forefathers. But when when God gave Moshe his Torah, the totally transcendent knowledge of an unlimited God, unattainable or graspable by limited men, Moshe learned and forgot until it was gifted to him, until God, who alone can connect the limited and the unlimited, gave his unlimited wisdom to Moshe, gifting it to Moshe with a full heart, with a complete desire to give this gift to Moshe, who was a limited being. And the same for every Jew who can internalize Torah and it remains with him, and is internalized and remembered because God gave him his Torah, his Torah, given as a gift. And since we take the Torah from God, who has given it to us, there must be the bittel, the abnegation of self and ego, so that, that the Torah will remain internalized 
engarded within us. Because the intention is that what we receive, we receive through our divine service, through our efforts, not like a free handout. Man must, on his part, ensure that he is to some extent worthy of receiving God's Torah. This is achieved through Bittal, leaving his sense of self, which actually limits him, as we discussed. According to all of this, we can understand the connection between the teaching of our sages. There was no water in it, but there were snakes and scorpions and the holiday of Hanukkah, a connection that determines the presence of this precise midrash in the Gemara that teaches about Hanukkah. There's a well-known explanation regarding the particular wording of the Vial Hanissim prayer that we say on Hanukkah. The words read, When the Greek nation arose to make your Torah forgotten, the Greeks did not want the Jews to forget the intellectual wisdom of Torah or to even completely cut us off from Torah. They wanted only that we forget that this is God's Torah. And toward this end, they defiled all the oil in the sanctuary of the temple. They didn't get rid of it because oil represents wisdom. The Greeks were all for the Jews retaining wisdom, wisdom, even Torah study. But they wanted the wisdom represented by the oil to be defiled oil, God forbid, Wisdom disconnected from the holiness of Torah and the giver of Torah. This is one of the reasons why God made a miracle and they found one undefiled pure jug of oil. It was actually permitted for them to light the menorah with defiled oil as impurity becomes permissible when the majority of the people are impure. And nevertheless, because the victory of Hanukkah is represented in the perpetuation of the Torah being your Torah, and they could not obliterate this, Miraculously, what was discovered was this one jug of pure oil. As we discussed earlier regarding the teaching, there was no water, but there were snakes and scorpions. It is when there is the water of Torah, the nullification of self, to the giver of Torah, that one is protected from these snakes and scorpions. In Hanukkah as well, particularly through lighting the lights of Hanukkah with pure oil, the rebellion against God is annihilated. If pure oil is missing, in other words, the idea of Torah secha, the connection to God, the giver of Torah, then there is space for rebellion against God to manifest. The Talmud tells us that the mitzvah of lighting Hanukkah candles is until people, the Talmudai, finish coming in from the marketplace. The Talmudai were the lowest of people who rebelled against God. Talmud in Hebrew has the same letters as the word moredet, treason. Even the lowest people are affected by the lights of the menorah to the extent that they become good, entirely good, and one with God. Through lighting the lights of Hanukkah at the doorpost of one's home to the outside so that the outdoors becomes illuminated, the possibility of rebellion is obliterated, even from the lowliest, until we can illuminate the darkness of exile and bring down the true, complete redemption speedily, Mamash.